0: Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And as usual, I've got a couple of really interesting guests. This week, we're talking about urban agriculture, specifically in the, uh, in the again, sort of in the urban context, and urban agriculture as a, a real estate amenity and looking at some national models, but also Uh, How it's played out, hang out locally. So my guests are Darren Jaffe, who's also known as Farmer D, and he's uh, with Farmer D Consulting. He's gonna, he's based out of the Atlanta area or near Atlanta. He's gonna talk a little bit about his journey to to really becoming a subject matter expert on the subject. And Darren was here this week for a panel, Urban Land Institute, local chapter of Urban Land Institute had a panel on the subject. And so seemed like a great topic for Memphis Metropolis. We haven't really done much on urban agriculture. Um and so it seemed like a great time. And then also I'm joined with Marlon Foster who's here in Memphis Who's the executive director of Knowledge Quest, which has a very large learning farm that's been going for several years, and also spurring a lot of interesting neighborhood revitalization in the South Memphis area? So, welcome both you guys.
1: Thank you. Be here.
0: And I meant to mention um, also that Darren is the author of. Citizen Farmers, which is a book that you can get on Amazon and I'll put the link in the show notes for those of you that are listening on the podcast. And also there's a Citizen Farmers podcast that I'm going to check out. It's probably really interesting. So, so Darren, uh, a little yesterday in the, I heard your presentation, which was really interesting and you started out by talking just a little bit about, um, how you got into this work, and so I thought that would be a good kickoff. Just briefly, how you how you got interested in in urban archi- in agriculture as sort of in the urban context and as a tool to deliver um, benefits to the community, benefits to the real estate industry, and all of that. So, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, it's always so difficult to keep that short. I I realized yesterday in my presentation, you know, once you start telling a story, uh, it's hard to not really get into it. So, but I'll I'll do my best to try to really abbreviate it here. I mean, really, the the big kind of moments for me on this journey for it's been about twenty five years when I first got into farming, and honestly, it started in a garden. You know, it started in a backyard garden. And I, I got really interested in food and agriculture, really curious, and did an, uh, an apprenticeship on an organic farm the summer of my freshman year of college. And it was through that internship that I really got exposed both to the the actual work of farming and the you know the passion developed there. Just I love growing food um, and being in touch with the soil and you know nature, the outdoors and the fulfillment of growing things and sharing the harvest with community and seeing the impact that that has is is really powerful um and then i also became more philosophically educated about our food system and you know the challenges that we face environmentally socially um really the thing that hit me the most i think was just that we're losing small family farms at a rapid rate um, to big industrial agriculture and there's a lot of reasons for that, um, you know, in our the way our food system's set up. But also, what I what I learned over the years too is that development, the pressure of development and sprawl, has a really big impact on pushing agriculture further and further away from where where people are. And so, that really led me down this journey um, that got me into, you know, working in real estate and and farming, realizing that we instead of just having these two opposing forces. Yeah. You know, development and agriculture at odds with each other. Is there a way for them to actually be um, synergistic? And it was obvious to me, having studied community supported agriculture and biodynamic farming, that it's commu- farming is about community. It's about culture, um, and so the 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 work that's really evolved for me over the years is integrating farming more and more into urban suburban and rural environments. Um, you know, Marlon's work in the urban environment is so, in, especially in, you know, addressing some of the issues of food insecurity, health and wellness, um, food access is a huge passion of mine, but also really just looking at how do we preserve farmland and how do we activate that farmland? And part of that is really just what is that? What are the models for farming that can be viable in today's world, you know, especially, you know, smaller scale, diversified local food production um, that's not, you know, polluting the the, the land and, and people and, and animals, but re- rather regenerating it and helping be part of this bigger solution that, you know, we have just, a, you know, addressing climate change and some of the issues that, uh, you know, some of the big, really big issues of our time. Agriculture is a huge, a huge um, potential lever. It's a lever um, that can either be, detrimental, um, in some regards on, you know, on the, the environment or really beneficial. And so, and then in the social environment is the same way, you know, I think agriculture can be such a activator of community and a connector for people, um, and for supporting healthy communities, healthy people. Um, so that's, that's really the the work that, um, that I've been committed to and really passionate about.
0: Well, it, that was what really piqued my interest because, is sort of the intersection with real estate because, you know, Memphis is very sprawling. And I think in terms of the city, you think of agriculture as like a zoning classification. And in Memphis, historically, it's just been land that's waiting around getting to be rezoned. I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, even in now in the news media, there's still articles about that, about people... You know who have agriculturally zoned land on a major commercial corridor, trying to get it rezoned, and and I've never. Um, of course, I'm aware of you know the work that Marlon. We've got a lot of work around here in the sort of the 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 food, the healthy food environment within community development. But I hadn't really thought about it in that context, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. But Marlon, um, I want to talk more about Knowledge Quest a little later, but. What about your own journey? I mean, I guess I always thought of KnowledgeQuest as start, sort of starting out as a youth-serving organization, and then you had the learning farm, and now it's kind of become the work, it seems. And so what was that, briefly, what was that sort of, what was your journey in this space?
1: It's very, very ironic. I mean, KnowledgeQuest overall with this kind of home health and opportunity methodology, I mean, all of the practices actually trace back to the foundation of our founding, you know, 23 years ago, it's kind of got brighter, got shinier, gotten, you know, more um, expansive. Uh, but yeah, but our first community garden was actually in 1999 in the Farrell Homes public housing development. Uh, first teacher ever I never talked about the farm. I'm talking about Miss Ernestine Ward. Uh, she was a vegan in the same age as my mother and, she said, we're going to do a farm. And I said, yes, ma'am. But 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 our journey and even my personal journey uh, started off around I was trying to get students and families in Fowler homes. We have four generations under you know roofs, you know, and I was really engaged with I was after intergenerational programming. You know, she was after good health and nutrition and we both got what we wanted through this community garden. Uh, And then that led into STEM, and how can we connect the work we're doing in extended learning with the science uh, of land, earth and life science that's so full in agriculture. Um, Then that journey, you know, led us into good health and nutrition, uh, which is by far virtually our largest audience is around our good health and nutrition courses, courses around food and mood, uh, where we take, you know, mental health and physical health alignments. and then I went personally to this thing around land. Um, you know, I, um, I'm a minister as well. There's a separate organization, Christ Quest Community Church. But, you know, land is so uh, meaningful um, in, in, in not just the Christian faith, but many faith traditions. Uh, so I went through that around land and identity with land and, and, and faith. And that kind of led to ecology. And, you know, we became... USDA certified organic in 2012, which is really about under the land and sustainability, um, you know, and then, you know, latter years, we saw how community and economic development could really be realized as we saw just from the aesthetic beauty and the transformation of these, you know, now 30 vacant lots and four abandoned buildings uh, really began to impact our neighbors in a different way. Uh, and began to impact development around the farm uh, in a different way. So that's kind of been our trajectory. And now, if you peel the layers back on Greenleaf, you'll still see all of those elements, good health and nutrition, uh, community economic development and education, um, even most recently putting a collegiate dormitory on the farm. All of that kind of goes back to fusing Of our experience over the years.
0: Yeah, that I I didn't know about the dorm until the presentation yesterday, although I remember the building before it was redeveloped, for sure. And that's very exciting. So Darren, you talked, you talked a little bit about how this, these projects, there's sort of a convergence of, you know, land conservation, you know, benefit, community benefit, and then farm and nature. Can you, um, Kind of as you know, goals or benefits, or can you elaborate a little bit about that? About how those those things are all important and how they kind of come together in these um, in these kind of projects.
2: Yeah, and you said it so well. I mean, it starts with zoning, you know. And I think one of the the challenges that we've got is that the way development has happened um, has really just been about development and housing, and not about conservation and agriculture. And so, you know, when when we look at development, um, and we think about how can development actually be a, a, a tool to help promote um, and enable conservation of our most pristine natural areas, and green belts and corridors, wildlife corridors, and watersheds, and also be a a, a way to help pr- preserve agricultural land, especially the prime agricultural land close to cities and where and where people are are living and building homes. So this convergence, you know, we look at kind of these three pillars, as you mentioned, n- nature, agriculture, and community, right. And at the nexus of those three things is really, you know, kind of a healthy ecosystem. Um, and I, I, think of ecosystems, you know, humans are part of that ecosystem. You know, I have this principle of biophilia, this idea that we're not actually separate from nature, right. We kind of separate ourselves always, you know, but, Um, agriculture is kind of this really interesting bridge, um, for people to the natural world. You know, it's obviously something we all, you know, we all depend on. Um, and so, so, you know, what we look at when we're doing planning, uh, whether we're trying to influence zoning policies to support this kind of more farm-based conservation, agrarian community instead of suburbia or urban, right? Like, We don't really have a good, I I I was talking about this actually yesterday with someone like, you know, when we are looking for the kind of places that you want to live, a lot of folks are looking for more of that rural environment, that kind of nice open space country, but they also want the like amenities of a city. You know, they want culture, they want good schools, they want, you know, sports and activities. and, um, And we've kind of siloed all of these things apart from each other. And there's not very many options where you can have the best of Of all of it where you can have that conservation natural access to nature um and proximity to agriculture and at the same time still have some of the amenities of 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 in town um you know what we've kind of got is you either live in the city and you know there's that and you can walk to stuff and and it's great but it's it's very urban you don't have a lot of the natural areas or agriculture typically then you've got suburban living where you depend on your car to go everywhere and anywhere And so everything revolves around the car. You know, so what we look at is how do we create conservation-based farm villages where you live in a walkable community with really easy access to everything you need right there, friendly, especially for kids, you know, to run around and have the access to nature and friends and not have to be, you know, get in a car every time they want to go to a a friend's house or an activity. And then, you know, really connecting those, those villages to, Natural areas where you can get on a trail and be in the forest or get on the creek or the river and, you know, experience nature on a regular basis. And then really the the, the foundation of this is having local food, you know, having healthy food grown, you know, right there where people have that access, they have that connection, um, they have that relationship. And the, the, the farm ends up becoming a really vibrant um kind of community living room, kitchen, dining room, you know, it's a, it's a place that people can all come together and connect around, you know, breaking bread around everyone can share their, their, their stories of food and culture. And, um, it's a common ground for folks, you know? And so that's, I, I love Marlon's story too, because, you, you know, I think it is about intergeneration. We've also siloed, you know, older folks from younger folks and, you know i think creating communities that you know that seniors and and elder folk and young people can be more interactive and engaged together um families you know the the these are the kinds of things where access to to gardens and farms and nature and and walkability and spontaneity where people can connect that's that's where the magic happens when you really get these ingredients together in balance so you know we've got a plan we got a zone for that we got a plan for that and we have to figure out models of how to sustain the the natural you know sustain the natural areas sustain the farms as you know and and the the key to this the community we need housing we need more housing and we need more diverse types of housing and more diversity within the types of communities we build so, you know, so i think there's a, there's kind of this interesting this juxtaposition but this synergy where development done right, can actually be a huge part of the solution, not only addressing the housing crisis, but addressing the conservation and local food piece as well.
0: So want to follow up on that. But before I do, just want to let everybody know they're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR, 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Darren Jaffe from Farmer D Consulting and Marlin Foster from Knowledge Quest. And we're talking about agriculture uh, really as an as an urban amenity in the the intersection of agriculture and real estate development. So, Darren, I'm glad you sort of introduced the concept of sort of the village, because, I mean, one thing I've learned in doing it, you know, doing a radio show about, you know, planning and development is that you're only there's no opportunity for pictures, really. And so um, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to, you know, for people to picture what we're talking about. And, but, um, and you showed a number of different models in the workshop yesterday, you know, where this kind of thing works in sort of an urban context, suburban rural, but in all of them, instead of having, you know, a bunch of houses in a subdivision sort of, you know in a traditional grid or a traditional subdivision, you know, the housing is clustered or the development, the buildings are clustered. And then in the same amount of space, the remainder of the space is devoted to, um, you know, farming and maybe some, you know, depending on the context it might be um, farming or farm markets or a combination or, but it's really sort of, you know, standalone real estate development, but just, it looks different and incorporates these other elements is am i doing a good job of sort of drawing up yeah, drawing no, a
2: picture uh, you know clustering is the key to conservation you know it's the only way that you can really make this work and and this this is not a new idea right like and it, it's because of the car um that really drove us away from you know walkability because every villages were all you know for thousands of years villages and hamlets have been The primary way that we, you know, centered community um, for for good reason, and you know, most of it's walkable and community oriented and connected to agriculture and the natural surroundings. We've just the car just kind of came in and dominated the landscape, and then you've just got, and we you know, we we thought suburbia was a good idea, and you know, now you've got a lot of problems: um, gentrification and traffic and. And lack of social connectivity and diversity. There's so many, and and obviously a lack of green space and and agriculture. So if we just take the simple principle, right, of preserving um, a certain percentage of the land for open space and agriculture, depending on where you are, like you said, you know, if you're urban, suburban or rural, you know, that that amount of open space is going to obviously go up as you get more rural, the amount that makes sense to keep the character of the area. But then, by clustering, you actually reduce the amount of infrastructure. So not only are you reducing the environmental impacts of sprawl, where you're spreading roads all over the property, you know, which affects the ability for wildlife, it affects the ability to farm, it just fragments the landscape. So by clustering, you're you're, you're avoiding that, but you're also reducing the cost of development significantly, you know, because you're reducing the amount of infrastructure you need. And then, you know, yeah, people are living closer together but they all share all the green space and open space. So you kind of, it's a bit of a culture shift, you know, and it, it takes good design and also takes people um, learning to live a little bit more, you know, people who live in cities are used to this all the time. You know, this is not, you know, cities are on top of each other. Villages, you're on top of each other a little bit, but you have these big outlets of open space. Um so it's it's really beautiful. I mean, we live in a we live in a community now that's that's a village. It's we're adjacent to a community called Serenby. and it's just amazing when you live in a community where there's kids running and walking everywhere, and communities are are it's just the sense of community that gets built organically without any intention. It's just it's just built into the design. Um, it's and I'm, Marlon sees this in his community. I mean, I even just hanging out with you for a couple hours, Marlon, the way that. You know, kids are walking by and you're interacting and you're able to check in on them and they're able to connect. And then all of a sudden they're in the garden and you're having an important conversation and you're waving at the neighbor. And, you know, that's the kind of community building that, that the spaces that we're talking about and the pride in community and community and the, and the that's what we're starting to cultivate. As much as we're cultivating food and areas for, for, for nature to thrive, we're really cultivating an opportunity to, to, for, for community to happen.
1: I think you know which is what everybody wants um Darren we you know Emily, we got into a conversation yesterday about um you know motivation and we were speaking with uh developers you know around cost. and you know you can you can check the boxes and and there is you know agriculture, especially urban agriculture even in in any context it it has uh, means you know so so it's it's it can be a mean to Home buyer draw. It can be a mean to rental tenant retention. Um, it could be a mean to just amenities on a development, uh, blight remediation for some communities like Memphis, and even these these development principles around livable communities and walkable communities. But but the type of investment and partnership that's required uh, also. Uh, you know, kind of, you know, demands almost that that developers and those that engage the space understand agriculture and conservation methods uh, as an end in and of themselves, because, you know, it's going to require that because some of this work, you know, is subsidized. It, it does. It will increase the cost uh, of development. There are sustainable uh, needs that these operations will hold. So, you know, it's going to take that balance of, of motivation um, and, and, and to really approach it as a means, yes, uh, and uh, as an end in and of itself and really, you know, internalizing those values on the front. It's almost kind of like the arts, you know, in philanthropy, the arts we just trust. That the community benefit of the arts is just going to emerge. So we invest in those without a lot of many I mean we have we have ticket draws and sales, but you get what I'm saying. So how do we understand um, you know the science and art of agriculture, if you will, as this community benefit that the value that it's going to bring is inherent, and we trust that and we're willing to invest in that trust
0: well it's got community value but i'm guessing you know done right it's also got real estate value i mean based there and based someone asked about this um you know because the urban land institute obviously is a, a group of real estate professionals and um and someone asked you about this about about you know if the if if if, if they if these deals penciled out i guess he didn't use those words but um and it sounds like they I mean, that even, you know, there's just like when the arts, I mean, the arts is also an economic development generator and that's been measured. And I'm guessing that it's similar here.
2: I think it's a great analogy. And I think Marlon said it so well, you know, it's important to see the values, you know, we talk about like, you know, the value of of a tree is only, you know, really measured in lumber, for a house, right? Like we as a society don't really have a great metric for valuing things and they in their living state just of how they can be kind of utilized. Um and I think you know, if if you approach this with that in mind that we're we're creating multiple value value streams and Profit is one of them, but when you there's a couple of key things here. I think yes, the answer is it's encouraging to see that most of these projects are re- getting a much higher return than if with a farm than without a farm. You know, we're seeing anywhere from like you know something that the ULI report says somewhere I think between fifteen and thirty percent. That's a huge number. You know, when you talk about the the size of some of these projects, it more than pays for itself. But if that's, if you're going into this with um, just that motivation, you're going to miss um, the mark, I think, on a lot of the important pieces that make them successful, right? Coming into these with a really understanding the complexity and the, the nuance that goes into agriculture, value, the, 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 valuing it as an ends within itself, as Marlon said, is really important because otherwise it's hard to have the... Um, The staying power to to do something innovative and different if you don't have a little bit of passion and commitment to that within itself. Yes, there tends to be a a bigger upside, um, but it's it's a more complicated process. The other thing I'll say, and I've seen a lot of this actually, the amount of money and time that many development projects spend just to get a project approved to get through community process, to get through permitting, to get through, you know, entitlements. It's, it's, it, it blows my mind how much m- it, money is spent on staff, on planning, on marketing, on PR, on legal battles, on community education. I mean, it is, a, and, and, it's, and it's very high risk because a lot of these projects just fail because the community just rejects them. And it could take 20 years sometimes for a project to get approved. You know, and that millions and millions of dollars. And what I've seen in these projects with the the real commitment to conservation and agriculture is that the community gets behind the project instead of a, in front of it and against it. And just the savings in time and money to get a project quickly approved and up and running and and, and that the community is excited about and supportive of rather than in opposition to is to, to me, that's enough reason right there. You know you can do good and do well, and you can have a much more um enjoyable project. you know, I think everybody involved takes pride in it. Everybody involved sees the benefit and gets to gets to experience the benefits that the the positive impacts that this can have. You know, it's just it's it's it just takes a little bit of that, um, you know will and and a little bit of understanding, and that's why we focus so much on um, the educational side of this, the context, the, the, you know, the value proposition. Um, because otherwise if you just run, you know, when you see some of the projects, just, Oh, this is great. This is a good marketing tool. Let's just put this in our marketing package. What do we need to do to just check the box? How do we just get, just, just, you just do this for us so that we've said we've done it well, right. but there's Everyone no, loves farmers market, so
0: therefore we're going to do one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. <It's- laughs> And I, th- I find people who get, it, I mean, there's such a, you know, my whole book, the citizen farmer concept, we're all citizen farmers, we're all trying to, and I think everybody wants to be doing the right thing and help contribute to, you know, our kids, you know, future and the planet's future and, you know, and so this is a really exciting time because I think we have a model here that can be scaled and and solve the housing issue and the conservation and local food issue, you know, Very, very quickly, and and at a a really, um, you know, at a a escape. This is this is an issue in every community I've seen across the country. Every we are dealing with this this major issue of loss of farmland, loss of open space, this housing crisis, this kind of, you know, lack of inclusive and diverse communities. These kind of siloing of, and you know, this is just an exciting, I think, moment and an important moment, really when you look at the, the big picture of where we're at as a society um, and just kind of where we are in, in planetary health, we have to create better models for how we can live more lightly and, and more um, healthfully. And this is, this, this is it. I mean, I, we just have to redesign reimagine communities to be more, you know, locally based, more resilient, more connected, more diverse, um, and, and start not being so reliant on this um, kind of more, industrial kind of, you know, shipping everything all over the place, relying on pure kind of capitalist kind of market, you know, mentality to get to to solve some of these, some of these problems.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit about Memphis um, and the opportunity here. So what are the, I guess, um, what are the, what are the pieces of, what are the elements that are required to make these kind of projects, you know, work at a community and then do we have those in place in Memphis or um, do we need to build them? I guess for, um, you know, Marlon, you're the local expert, but for, for a question for both of you.
1: I think for Memphis in particular, you know, Darren and I got into this with riding around. You know, South Memphis and its similar pockets in North Memphis and other places. We actually talked about Frazier and um, uh, where we have. You know, at one point recently, thirty thousand vacant or, or blighted, you know, residential commercial lots. We know over four thousand are in land bank, and really for us, when it, when we started the whole, you remember that we had something they're called the 25 square. So it was a lot of demolition, a lot of blight remediation efforts in Memphis. Um, and it was trying to, you know, construct 25 block, you know, areas at a time. And, you know, that, that big movement is what we said, okay, wait a minute, we're on to something. Cause it was really, all of this for us has just been really responsive and really uh, trying to shift, you know, deficits to assets Just trying to look at an asset based approach, and I think the the vacant lot um, I call it epidemic sometimes. I think is really what gives us the opportunity um, in Memphis to do something different.
0: But but that's not enough. I mean, we need. um, Well, first of all, you need you know an interested real estate development sector you need people that want to you know be farmers or work in those industries and um and Darren what are some of the other elements in addition to plentiful land that are needed to make these kind of projects not necessarily the the money but what are some of the other sort of infrastructure elements in a community
2: well you know there's there's a there's a bunch of different um places where these start, right? So I've been really actually fascinated by, by this, um, this idea. So usually, you know, historically what's been happening is developers, you know, learn about AgriHoods through groups like ULI, they've got, they've, they've got projects um, and they, and they say, okay, could we, could we incorporate this idea into this project? Right. And at, at, that point, you know, in some cases you're early enough in the design and planning process to really figure out what wh- how this could work really well. In some cases, you know, it's already been engineered and kind of started to be planned and it's a little bit of an afterthought and you're trying to work kind of retrofit into a more traditional, you know, plan. Um, you know, and, and you can work in both of those. It's obviously much preferred to work with, you know, from the very beginning of, of a site and to do a site analysis through this lens. From the beginning right the the other opportunities are that i'm seeing a lot of our historic farms you know landowners pre-developers developers haven't gotten to the property yet landowners got this you know maybe you know family farm generational family farm they're in the path of development you know it's a really special property to their family they realize you know this is their 401k this is this is you know that this makes sense for development but can they do it in a way that preserves the legacy and the heritage of the farm? And so then you look at, you know, the historic resource that's there with the farm. So, you know, again, you're looking at, you're looking at the land and really understanding you know, which land should be preserved and protected for agriculture first versus what land is left over once we've engineered this thing for houses. Um, and then and then you've got, and those are really exciting, and we're getting a lot more of those kinds of landowners who are saying, hey, what's a, what can we go to a developer with and say, this is what we'd like to see happen. We want to see the majority of this farm preserved and protected and maintain the rural character, but we want to do some development because we see that, you know, we could create a great community on this and leverage the resources that are here and, um, you know, but not necessary. But but preserve, but preserve the heritage. And then the last piece that I think um, is probably the biggest opportunity is if counties and cities really zoomed out and looked at these bigger master plans for their for their cities and counties, and identified where the best farms are, where are the best natural areas. How do we create green belts and farm belts, and you know connect those? And so you don't have kind of this hodgepodge of random projects, you know, patchworked between a bunch of, you know, more traditional stuff and you get all you don't get the connectivity. But if you actually really thought out, you know, decades ahead and put the zoning in place to incentivize those landowners and there's tools in the toolkit, there's transfer of development rights, there's conservation easements, there's all different ways to incentivize landowners um, that are sitting on some of the best natural and farm-based assets to preserve them and still benefit from development in the region. And so some of that has happened where I live in the Chattahoochee Hills just south of Atlanta, where we're we're doing that work. There's zoning in place for hamlets and villages. There's a required seventy percent conservation, thirty percent development. but but there's a, but but you can move density. So you can create hamlets and villages. You can, you know there's there's a tool there's a bit of like the tools are in the toolbox for for planners and developers to actually do this kind of work and that's not that's not the case a lot of zoning just hasn't been updated to allow for this more kind of agrarian village model right it's just it's a it's a new idea um for for our, for this country so so the the last thing i'd say is like if we can start to look at where are those last properties in the urban environment, those infill opportunities, you know, that are adjacent to schools and, you know, churches and senior communities and other, you know, like really identify where the best locations to to put these kinds of urban ag, you know, mixed use communities in these and preserve the last pieces of open space in our cities. Um, and there's not many opportunities left. This, this is that is that is one of the most, I'd say, pressing opportunities. And then there's several examples um, I could speak to, but then the second cat- second level is looking at the, where that edge is, right? Where that like the pressure of development is just pushing out into the rural edge. And that's really the suburban sprawl. And look, that's more where you can look at green belts and farm belts and start thinking about, okay, if we start really thinking about where all this development pressure is and, and incentivizing and encouraging Conservation based development, more hamlets and villages, more protection of open space, green space, farmland. Um, That's the, you know, you could go look for that stuff as opposed to react to projects. You know, you can start to map that and, and prioritize. And then the last one, which gets me the most excited, are small rural towns. You know, you go to these existing little, you know, historic farm towns that usually have a railroad or some kind of farm infrastructure, some, Know a little bit of you know from community, uh, the infrastructure is there to build, rebuild what are mostly kind of you know dilapidated rural towns, where the economy's str- struggling, the health is struggling, the education is struggling, the agriculture is mostly, um, you know a lot of, a lot of conventional kind of monocrop agriculture, and so if you could start to take some of those and identify where those great rural communities are to start to create those farm belts and green belts and, and re, revitalize those, those towns and connect them back to the city, you know, cause there's a lot of urban people, especially now, you know, with COVID um, that are, are much more interested and, uh, and able to live a little more remote, you know, live that rural village life. You know, it's like I, they want a little bit of country, but they want that little bit of town. And so instead of sprawling, and creating new towns, in in you know, let's rebuild some of our small towns in this country and and reinvigorate the agriculture um, to feed our cities and feed our communities.
0: Well, it sounds like I think what you're saying is that there's I mean a couple of things I took away from that your remarks just that first of all, you know, I in an ideal world you've got a strategy. I mean, really, ideally at the regional level, but if not, certainly at at our Memphis Shelby County, having a strategy. And then there's also, you know, policy, um, really policy changes that are needed to sort of set the stage for these kind of projects to happen.
2: That's exactly right. That's exact. an education, you know, education to landowners, education to the cities, um, the planning commissions, you know, the public, because it's, it's, different it's not the way we've been doing things and uh, when people see visually the difference they usually of course that's what i want i want i want the green space i want the rural character i I want the walkability i want the community but but when you explain it it's it's complicated right because people also want the right to be able to (laughs) develop their land and make the money they want to make on their land and you don't have you, you can have your cake and eat it too you know in this scenario it just takes a little bit of educating the public and the, and the, and the policymakers to set those things in, 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 place. And the last thing I'll say is you really do need, you know, you need land trusts, um, involved in this. Um, you need government involved in this. You need the development community involved. You need the farmers and the farm, the, uh, the, the universities, right. The pipeline of, and the schools K through, through 12, you know, there's a, a whole, you know, a lot of what Marlon talked about with education, Um, There's a lot of career opportunities in this space as, as we start to like imagine a bunch of communities with working farms and, and agricultural enterprises and, you know, food and farm based businesses. Those are jobs. Um, There's a lot of jobs opportunities. And so we need to be developing the talent. Um, And, and also I think giving this, these, the, the youth um, an opportunity to really participate and contribute to what the future looks like. Cause they're really the future and it's not a pretty future right now that they're inheriting. And so how do we give them some opportunities to kind of, you know, step into these, these, these job opportunities that are setting better precedents um, and creating a healthier place for them to live as they grow up.
0: So I guess Marlon, last question for you, the, I mean, when I was, uh, one of the cool things, you know, reflecting on knowledge quest is of course, this this model you you've really been this implementing this model and it happened organically it wasn't you know planned as it were I don't think from the start it just grew from what you were doing so what's I guess what's next for Knowledge Quest but then also has this whole conversation over the last few days and you know maybe you read the the, the book have has that changed your thinking about how um, your work. Has Do you think it'll influence your work going forward?
1: Most definitely. I think you said it. Number one, we were more organic over the last nearly decade uh, with just opportunity and trying to respond to blight. So imagine hanging out with Darren and, and the affirmation uh, and the inspiration uh, that he stirred. But also, you know, um, our time together has challenged me to really think about what's in front of us right now. We just uh, approve. Uh, we're in the process of of having uh, before the CRA the um, South Memphis TIF, uh, where we have um, even nonprofit developers and other private developers coming together around what South Memphis can look like. So I think that you know it's also timely in a way that we can be intentional on the front end about how we develop and how we uh, gap fill when it comes to housing and affordable housing and how we understand retail and even our commercial centers around, um, agriculture as a, as a, as a, medium, especially we have a, a, a effort like Greenleaf, um, you know, probably, you know, 10 years ago, it was, you know, urban farms and, and Greenleaf with, with knowledge quest, trying to really go beyond a community garden model to really like one to three acres. And, um, you know, we, we've stuck to their work because of really, we say, a triple bottom line uh, because it's more than just education for students. It's more than workforce development. It's all of those things. But I think for us in particular, we are now uh, we are we just acquired a container cafe and farm stand in South Memphis. Uh, we got some Tennessee Department of Agriculture support for a uh, career and technical education value processing space. Um, And last year, we acquired a corner grocer that's right there on the farm. So the kind of retail and workforce development piece uh, is the next phase for us of really expanding retail outlets. Um, So we're on education. uh, We're on our sales and and events, and we're on agritourism. So we want a way to see how can we draw from students that can we be on the list with the Nature Center and with the Memphis Zoo? Uh, All the way down to the 60,000 folks that visit Stacks and Beale Street, hundreds of thousands around the corner. Can we make agriculture a part of the tourism framework uh, for Memphis and its surrounding area?
0: I love that idea. Very cool. I look forward to hearing how that develops. And that reminds me that I didn't tell you guys at the beginning, which I usually do with new people, is I have a jargon bell that I ring. (laughs) Because, uh, of course, in planning discussions, there's a lot of jargon that people might not know. And, and Darren, you you used agrihood, which I heard for the first time yesterday, which I loved. And I don't know if it needs any explanation, but I'm adding that to my jargon toolbox.
2: <laughs> well, there's a, there's a report that we did um, a few years ago called Agrihoods, Cultivating Best Practices, which was kind of an attempt to just begin to define what an agrihood is. Um, and it's actually a good way to kind of wrap up a little bit, you know, it's a term that got used in an article when describing some of these communities built around working farms. And so essentially, you know, ULI has kind of defined the agrihood as a community built around a working farm. What is interesting is that there's a very broad spectrum of what that means, right? So it could be a very small farm with a lot of homes. It can also be a very large farm with a very few amount of homes. And so, you know, what what I talked about in my presentation yesterday and what I like to kind of look at is, you know, that conservation metric, right? How how much agriculture and open space makes sense based on where the project is. Is it extremely rural? Is it suburban or is it is it in town or urban? And based on that character, you're going to have slightly different scales of a farm, right? Um, and I would just say roughly from 50% of a property up to 90%. You know, in, in a rural context, you'd be more in like the 70 to 90%, you know, preserved for open space and ag. And, and the, the village cluster would be more in character with the rural character. You know, suburban might be 50 to 70%. Urban might be more like 20 to 50%. So, you know, so in an, an agrihood, is the concept is great, right? It's a neighborhood built around agriculture. Um, in practice, what What that means and and how, what the the positive impacts of what that really can look like vary quite a bit. Um, and so that's one of the things that we really want to help, you know promote the concept and get more people you know incorporating agriculture into their community at any scale, but also really look at like how how can we really um, make a positive impact and set good precedence around conservation and agriculture and community.
0: Great. Well, that is a great way to end the discussion. So you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FN. We've been talking about urban agriculture and agri as you've just heard, if you just tuned in. I've been talking to Darren Jaffe, also known as Farmer D, who's uh, with Farmer D Consulting, and who's in town for, for a presentation at Urban Land Institute, but also to see some of our a great work, including that of Green Lave Learning Farm at KnowledgeQuest. And Marlon Foster, who's the executive director there, has been my other guest. So thank you both so much for coming on Memphis Metropolis and just really appreciate it. It's been a great discussion.
2: Well, thanks so much, Emily. I really enjoyed it and just loving getting to know Marlon. I'm so inspired and admire what you're doing, Marlon, and I'm excited to work with you more.
1: Likewise. Thanks, Darren. Always a pleasure to share. And Emily, thanks for uh, having us on.
0: You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.